Welcome to Talking Race, Faith, and Justice, The Rantings of a Layman. Today's episode, The Why of History. I'm going in. In 2018, the Berkeley Unified School Board voted to change the name of LeConte Elementary School to Sylvia Mendez Elementary. In honor of the American activists who in the 1940s challenged segregated schools in California and won. But why? Wasn't Joseph LeConte, who the school was named after in 1951, a celebrated UC Berkeley geologist and conservationist? and one of the founding members of the Sierra Club, one of the first environmental preservation groups in the world. Why, yes, he was. But he was also a slave owner who extolled the virtues of white supremacy in his lectures and writings, even during his time in Berkeley. And I'm assuming naming the school after a white supremacist was fine prior to Berkeley schools integrating in 1968, And that over the next 50 years, the origin of the school's name was probably either forgotten or simply ignored. Because, you know, it doesn't matter, right? By the time the school became BUSD's flagship Spanish immersion school, with 55% of its 398 students being Latinx and 12% being black, the jig was up. No pun intended. And teachers, parents, and the district decided that the school moniker was inappropriate. You know, like a high school where blacks make up 92% of the student body being named after Robert E. Lee, the famed general of the Confederate Army during the Civil War. What the f- I know, it's crazy. Montgomery, Alabama, I'm looking at you. But I digress. At the time of the school's name change, Berkeley was joining in on the soul-searching happening around the country. Many states and local leaders were reconciling the fact that so many institutions and monuments paid homage to persons who either fought for, legislated policies that reinforced, or gave full-throated endorsements to white supremacy. After several high-profile killings of unarmed black men by police, the Black Lives Matters movement rose up, and these leaders, who got what that phrase meant, realized that if black lives truly mattered, then to have black people having to endure the humiliation of, of attending schools or working in buildings, living on city streets, and lauding institutions bearing the names of those who were the forefathers of their misery was to be complicit in the perpetuation of the oppression of implicit white supremacy. You see, this was a period of collective cleansing. As a nation, we had finally become woke to the insidiousness of white supremacy. And it wasn't just in the roots of our institutions and systems. It was hidden in plain sight, emblazed in front of our eyes, taunting us with just how freely we accepted the unacceptable. Like, I loved the Deuce of Hazard when I was a kid, especially the car. What the f- I know, right? The point is that BUSD was a microcosm of what was going on in the country. 
coming to the realization that it is idiotic to try and hold up your institutions as inclusive learning communities that claim to celebrate multiculturalism when every day students had to enter through the doors of a school named after a man who never wanted them there based on his belief of their racial inferiority. It was that realization born out of asking the why of history that the parents, teachers, and the district set out to bring an end to, to the continued oppression of implicit white supremacy. It is time for the American Christian Church to ask the why of its own history. There is racism in the American Christian Church. There are racists in the American Christian Church. There are racists in the leadership of the American Christian Church. And if not blatant racism, crippling attitudes formed through implicit and explicit bias. As I said in the first episode, this podcast is not for theological debates or philosophical discussions. I'm keeping it gut bucket. We can't say Sunday is the most segregated day of the week and act like we don't know what that means and not question that if that shameful statement was first uttered some 60 plus years ago, why knowing that it has been allowed to remain so to this day? I recently read an interview with Jamar Tisby, writer and president of the website The Witness, a black Christian collective, on his book The Color of Compromise, in which he explores the legacy of white supremacy in the church. In the interview, they share a quote he gave to the New York Times in which he said, racism is not a blind spot within white evangelicalism. It is part of that tradition's DNA. Now, so don't you, so, so you don't get confused. White evangelicalism used to be just known as evangelicalism. And I wanted to make sure because I'm only 20 years deep in my faith. But my wife, uh, she's been a follower since she was five. She's a pastor's kid, a PK as they are called. Was part of the inner varsity, a campus ministry in colleges across the country. Her mother's people are out of the Mennonite tradition and she's white. So, you know, I, I thought she would know. So I said, Deb, because that's her name. I said, Deb. Has there always been this distinction of white evangelicals in the church as opposed to uh, just evangelicals? Not surprising, she said no. She had not grown up hearing that distinction and hadn't really even heard it used until a few years ago. See, I want to make sure we're all on the same page. White evangelicalism, evangelicalism, Progressive evangelicals all come from the same tradition and share the same history of that tradition. I could do a whole drag on the history of evangelicalism, but I'm not a historian, so that's not my vibe. I will point out, however, that like Robert E. Lee High School, Montgomery, Alabama, I'm still looking at you. As humiliation is passed on to generation after generation 
of the black students the school purports to serve, so are the wounds of white supremacy in the church passed on to generation after generation of the followers of Christ. Now certainly, there have been times in the history of the American Christian church that it could have rebuked slavery and white supremacy before it became so embedded in the church itself. After all, there was a second awakening during the 1800s where parts of the church held fast to the gospel and not only called out the sin of slavery, but led reform revivals demanding its end. But moments like this in the church's history are made obscure when compared to the times the church's response to slavery and racism were at best muted as during the first Great Awakening during the 1700s, and at its worst, complicit as during the Southern Whites' Rebellion against Reconstruction that wiped out most of the agency given to black folks in Southern states post the Civil War. Or the church's silence to the atrocities of segregation and Jim Crow. Let's consider the First Great Awakening. Two prominent figures in the First Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitefield, exemplify the contradictions between the early church and the gospel. Both men were prominent evangelical pastors at the forefront of the First Great Awakening. They preached to both slaves and slaveholders, made spaces for integrated services. They admonished brutality committed by slaveholders on slave, and they acknowledged that the slave had souls to be redeemed through Christ so they would not be condemned to hell after death. However, both owned slaves, and both made sure to modify their sermons when speaking to slaves as to not nurture the hopes of freedom that Christ brings to the prisoner. Edwards even baptized blacks and allowed some to be full members of his church, but he justified slavery as an accepted practice of servitude and dependency. And Whitefield, for his part, in order to fund an orphanage he had established in Georgia, he advocated to change the constitution of Georgia that made slavery illegal to allow the practice for economic reasons, arguing that the poverty experienced throughout the state demanded that slavery be made legal. If I am being fair, Edwards and Whitefield were men of their time. And while I might believe that these paragons of American evangelicalism should have been more courageous or, or honest or both about the message of freedom that Christ brings, I have to admit that scripture doesn't say in no uncertain terms that slavery is against God's will. In Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, Paul exhorts the slave or bond servant, as it is written, to... Obey your earthly master with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. And again, if I'm fair, in Colossians 3, 22, Paul calls for the masters to treat your 
bond servant, justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. And to their credit, I suppose, Whitefield and Edwards preached just that. In Whitefield's case, vigorously, that the slaveholders, in their brutal violence against the men, women, and children, they held in forced servitude. So what we get is the tacit approval of slavery from evangelicals. Or at the very least, we get slavery is not ideal, but it's not the church's place to challenge the system. Thus begins in the Christian church, although some might argue the continuation of what was started in Europe, the distortion of the gospel in the service of white supremacy. American evangelicalism and therefore the American Christian church were led by men who benefited from the social order of the day, in Whitefield's case, monetarily, Rather than using the power of the gospel and leading revivals that call for the disruption of a system that profited off of human misery and bondage and the dehumanization of black men, women, and children, they made evangelicalism and the American Christian church co-conspirators in America's original sin. Because while church leaders may have been uncomfortable with the treatment of enslaved black people, they co-signed onto the ideology of white supremacy that made the subjugation of other human beings possible. And now that the chickens have come home to roost, rather than honestly atoning for the history that got us here, we want to talk about white evangelicals which is really just another way of making excuses, but not talking about white supremacy and racism in the church. Or maybe it's a way to scapegoat. Let's talk about them. Let's not talk about us. Oh, no, 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 no. Because if we accept them, then that's all about us. Because once again, when the gospel demands we do better, we instead allow the sin of racism to flourish in the body of Christ. Lord, have mercy. So I lied. I am giving you a history lesson of sorts. But it is because we have to know where we come from in order to figure out where we are going. I made my point. The American Christian Church has a race problem. And it did not start with the election of Donald Trump. In fact, Evangelicals' overwhelming support for such a vile man as Trump, their cult-like devotion to a man who displays not a scintilla of Christian love, should tell us there were problems with American evangelicalism long before Trump. And although I now see Facebook pages and articles from so-called progressive evangelicals bemoaning the embrace of white nationalism and xenophobic rhetoric espoused by Trump and his Ku Klux Klan, neo-Nazi, white supremacist supporters by white evangelicals. You see the air quotes? My question to the progressive evangelicals and the never-Trump evangelicals is, where were you while the build-up to Trump was taking place 
within the body of Christ. I know you weren't around during slavery and reconstruction, right? Uh, I ain't own no slaves. Yeah, I know. I know you didn't own any slaves. You weren't around during the civil rights movement, the most important Christian movement in the history of this country, in my opinion, when a majority of American evangelicals either turned their backs on or were openly hostile to the efforts of Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. But many of you were around in the 1980s, another time in American history when American evangelicals were at the, at the height of another Christian movement that sought to bring moral reform and rid the United States of cultural sin. However, rather than bringing justice for the oppressed or taking up the plight of the poor, because who cares about that? They chose to spend their energies fighting against abortion and homosexuality. Because these were America's biggest moral failings. Never mind that the 80s were a hotbed of racial tension highlighted by the outrage of the black community at the senseless killings of young black men by police. Oh, deja vu. Or the killing of Yosef Hawkins by a white mob in Bensonhurst, New York. Oh, and let's not talk about the high-profile resurgence of the KKK during this time. But the so-called moral majority was nowhere to be found, except voting for politicians who supported racist policies that were detrimental to already victimized black and brown communities by the legacy and continued abuses of systemic and institutional racism. Many of you are my dear friends who got caught up in the fervor of the evangelical movement of the 80s. Some of you were just coming to faith in college. Others were maturing in your faith through organizations like InterVarsity. And while you were committed to discipleship, eagerly proselytizing, inviting non-believers you met in class or at the local coffee shop to Bible studies, Vigilant and taking part in intercessory prayer, praying for the soul of our nation, you didn't notice the rot that had been metastasizing at the core of the American Christian church. Baptized during slavery, ordained through Jim Crow, and repackaged and remarketed through the Southern strategy. A little more history for those of you who don't know what the Southern strategy is. It was a political strategy employed by Republicans during the 1960s and 70s to increase support among voters in the South by exploiting their hostilities and fears of blacks, as well as their grievances towards the accomplishments made during the Civil Rights Movement with the dismantling of Jim Crow and segregation. The Republicans believed that if they played on those fears and grievances well enough and spoke to Southern voters in religious language that aligned with the proclaimed piety of the so-called Bible Belt, Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, Georgia, South Carolina, Kentucky, and North Carolina, they could hold secure the South as a political base for decades to come. 
And they were right. So in essence, the Southern strategy mainstreamed a distorted evangelicalism that sees its purpose as preserving the traditional values of white Southern Christians. But therein lies the furthering of the distortion because they were actually using faith as a way to declare culture wars meant to stave off the assault on the white male power structure as people of color, particularly African Americans, were gaining more control over their own agency as citizens. The gospel then was replaced with religious nationalism. This white evangelicalism, see the air quotes, has arguably driven the agenda of the modern evangelical movement in the U.S. over the last 30 to 40 years. And the massive support for Trumpism by American evangelicals is not an out-of-nowhere phenomenon. It is the natural evolution of a politically motivated race-based agenda. Come on, Tim. Why are you generalizing? These some good people. They the heartland of America. Kick rocks. These folks, these so-called Bible Belt folks, seem to be the ones who are always on the wrong side of the conversation when it comes to the topic of race in America in general. So they can miss me with their cheap grace. From where I sit, Bible Belt is an oxymoron. Now I was admonishing my progressive and never Trump brothers and sisters for not seeing this coming. And I only do that so we can start afresh from an honest perspective as to what we actually need to be talking about to save the soul of the church. The next great awakening must be focused on the sins of the church. And first and foremost, we must declare that there is no such thing as white evangelicalism. If we are to treat these folks who bastardize the gospel and cause terminal harm to the body of Christ as just another sort of denomination in the church, then we are betraying the God we love. This is not a theological debate or philosophical discussion, but it is a conversation. It cannot, however, be an honest conversation on how we as followers of Christ move forward as a united body if we feel the need to tolerate and give tacit acceptance to anti-gospel attitudes and behaviors. Now, I want to acknowledge the racial reconciliation movements that are happening and have happened in some places in the church. But I would argue these efforts have been patronized and marginalized by an evangelical movement preoccupied with esoteric crusades against choice and sexuality rather than taking up Christ's call to challenge unjust systems. In this case, a system that perpetuates white supremacy that benefits the dominant culture of the American Christian church. We must vindicate the gospel. Christians, black, white, Asian, Latinx, 
Native American, you must be discussing the history of racism in the church universal in your church homes. If we are not honest within our own faith communities about how the church's legacy of white supremacy influences how we worship, how we live out the gospel, and how we experience God, then we remain accomplices in inflicting spiritual oppression on our sisters and brothers of color. The image of God should be a mirror, not a window. My people, if you with me, where you at? I am for truth no matter who tells you. I'm out.